chapter 2, it's Titus 2, if you're looking at that blue Bible in front of you, it's page 998, Titus chapter 2, let me just tell you briefly the story of Titus 2, Paul is talking to a young pastor named Titus, and he says, Titus, I want you to make sure that you promote what is in accord with sound doctrine, so tell the older men, it's me, to live this way, the older women, live that way. The younger women, this way. The younger men, that way, and so forth. And so we're going to focus on verse 7 and 8. So here's what he says to Titus about being a minister. Chapter 2, Titus 2, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show, uh, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. That's, in the Greek, that's healthy, health-giving speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And all that Paul says to the older men, older women, younger men, younger women, etc., is all then, verse 11 through 14, based upon what Jesus has done for us. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, etc. So keep that in mind. We'll come back to verses 7 and 8 briefly in the sermon, but go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, that is page... 485, I want to encourage you to have your Bible apps open, your Bibles open, uh, your neighbor's Bible open, whatever, okay? Have a Bible open and follow along, not only as I read, but as we work through this passage, this is where we're going to be all morning here. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart, but as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For, here's the reason statement, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily threat, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. 
and afterward, or in the end, it says in Hebrew, in the end you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That, here's the purpose statement, that I may tell of all your works. What I've read to you from Titus and from Psalm 73 is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God who is good to Israel, to those who are pure hearts, bring us this day to see that you are continually with us. You hold our right hand and you guide us with your counsel. And you made this clear to us. And that you demonstrated your own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are in the back of the worship guide. You will notice there are six points. The first three have S words and the last three have C words. That was intentional. I didn't run out of S words. I wanted you to see the change. In fact, there should be a gap from the third point to the fourth point. should be a space in there because that's a significant moment in Psalm 73 where, where Asaph turns a corner. And I want to make sure that when you look back at your notes, if you do, that you look at that and you go, oh, I know what's going on. Right smack dab in the middle of the psalm, there's a change. So you'll keep that in mind. Dear friends, you may feel like as I go through Psalm 73 on this New Year's Day that I've gone from preaching to meddling, but I didn't go from preaching to meddling, I'm just going to meddle. And it's all of us need to hear this. I quoted this statement last week, it's the very top of your sermon notes there from Ed Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small. I quoted this last week and it is worth more thought. Anything that erodes the fear of God will intensify the fear of man. And this is true in the other direction. Anything that intensifies the fear of man will erode the fear of God. And there's a third direction, but I'll point it out as we go through the sermon. This is true, my friends. And for a new year, I think this is a rock-solid subject to ponder. And you will see Ed Welch's point being played out in Psalm 73. And so we begin verses 1 through 3 with a slip. We begin with a slip. Now, let me just start at the very top. A Psalm of Asaph. What in the world is that all about? Who is Asaph? Asaph was a Levite. He was one of those who were part of the priestly clan. Now, he was a Levite, so he didn't do the sacrifices. He just helped the high priests do their sacrifices. He kept the building, the tabernacle or the temple clean and and guarded it from uh, defilement, things like that. But he's part of the priestly clan, and he was to exemplify the difference between the clean and the unclean. And he was also meant to embody what is fitting worship from what is not fitting worship. And then he was to educate, all the Levites were to educate the people in all of this. But Asaph was appointed by David in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 7 and 37. By the way, that reference is down in the questions at the bottom of the notes, that reference. Asaph was appointed by David 
to do one more thing, to lead in worship, to lead in worship with songs and thanksgivings. When you recognize that, then it makes certain aspects of Psalm 73 most moving. This is a hymn, Psalm 73 is a hymn written by Asaph that is didactic and also is a a, a warning. It's to teach and admonish the people of God, to warn them not to go the way that Asaph once went, and then to guide them on how to perceive the conditions correctly. So rightly, beautifully, Asaph begins by hammering into the rocky soil an anchor. Uh, We all went camping one day, the dads and kids went camping, we were at the Wichita Wildlife Refuge, and as we get there, everybody knew, you need to anchor your tent down, because we're in Oklahoma, y'all, you know what I mean? That tent ain't staying there very long if you don't anchor it down, right? And so verse 1 is the tent anchor. It's anchoring the whole psalm for us. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But this anchor is meant to make clear the trouble that Asaph got into. If this is true, verse 1, then you immediately, verse 2 and 3, realize the trouble Asaph brought upon himself. Because what does he say? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, do you hear this? You hear the almost the conflict or the contrast here. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here he was. Not one of the pure in heart of verse 1. Not one of those looking with confidence to the God who is good to his people. But instead, there he was, slipping in the slime of envy. Now, probably most of you have never done a mud run. You know what a mud run is, right? Anybody know what that is? It's one of those five-mile or, yeah, one of those long courses with 25 obstacles and there's lots of slime and mud. The ways, and uh, Caleb and Derek and I did two mud runs together. And there's always, inevitably, a pit of water and slime, especially in Oklahoma. Red, red clay is the worst, right? And all this water, and there's no way to get out of the pit. Once you get in, you ain't coming out because it's slimy as all get out. That's what's happening here is that Asaph is slipping in the slime of envy. Verse 2 and 3. And notice it's not just any old envy, as bad as envy is, and envy is bad. It's not just any old envy, but it's envying the prosperity of the arrogant and the wicked. He didn't listen to the Proverbs. Let not your heart envy sinners. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. No, he didn't listen Instead, he looked in the wrong direction. Instead of looking at the God of verse 1, he looked at the prosperity and the successes of the arrogant and the wicked. He looked in the wrong direction and he envied the successes of the arrogant and the wicked. Anything that erodes the fear of God will intensify the fear of man. And inversely, anything that intensifies the fear of man will erode the fear of God. 
And that's exactly what Asaph is chronicling here in Psalm 73. Now notice in verse 2 and 3, notice what he doesn't do in verse 2 and 3. Very quickly, I'm just going to mention this and we'll come back to it later. He does not shift the blame. He doesn't say, well, you know, I was a victim, they're prosperous, and and I was just beaten down, and I was a victim, and that's why I became envious. He doesn't do that. He owns it, for I was envious. Here's why I almost slipped and slid. I was envious. In the words of our confession of sin this morning, he admits his own fault, his own most grievous fault. So the slip then led to the slide, and that's verses 4 through 14. The slip then led to the slide, verses 4 through 14. Now notice verse 4 through 12. You can tell as you read verses 4 through 12 that Asaph was scrutinizing. He was examining with a science, scientific examination. I mean, he was looking intensely at the achievements and the attainments of the wicked. He methodically lists all of the ways that they radiated success. He methodically lists all the ways they radiated success. Let's just run through the verses, verse 4 all the way to verse 12, very quickly. Oh, look, they're well-fed. They're without trouble or sickness. They're proud and violent. They're saturated with folly. They're able to get by with evil speech of all kinds, even sassy speech toward heaven and God. In verse 10 through 11, they even attract public acclaim and gather around them a gaggle of groupies. You know what a groupie is, right? Right? So they gaggle around them a, a gaggle of groupies who never find fault in them, never can find fault in them. And then comes the summary statement of the wicked's feet feet, and it's in verse 12. Behold, they are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. Very simply, they're powerful. They're polished. They're prosperous. They have all the media applause, and they promenade through life fat, dumb, and happy. And God seems unconcerned and almost approving. Which is what pained Asaph. It's like the woman I know who spent many, many, many years being oppressed financially, being oppressed emotionally, being oppressed spiritually, being oppressed verbally by the very one who was supposed to be her soulmate for the rest of her life, her husband. And he always seemed to be able to schmooze the police and the sheriff's deputies whenever they were called in. He was always able to seem to get out of every deserved consequence for his tyrannizing behavior. And she asked one day, in tears, with a balled up fists, why is he always getting the upper hand? Why is he always getting his way? Why does God let him off the hook all the time? You can hear the pain in those questions. That's what's going on in Asaph. And it's because Asaph is studying the wicked in all of their glamour and success. And as he studies them, he begins to slide down the dark, dark hole. In fact, 
he nearly loses his faith. Anything that erodes the fear of God will intensify the fear of man. And anything that intensifies the fear of man will erode the fear of God. He almost loses faith. Pastor, you're a Calvinist. Can you say that? Yes, I can say that. He nearly loses his faith. He even questions the value of pursuing God's ways. Look at verse 13 and 14. You can't miss it. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean. When someone who claims to be a believer says those words, you're in troubled waters, all in vain, have I kept my heart clean. But here he is also a priest, and so he goes on to say, he goes on to say, and wash my hands in innocence. Right? They had to wash their hands not to get rid of bacteria. It was a symbol, it was an enactment of purification as they came into the tabernacle to offer God holy, undefiled worship. And listen to what he's saying. All in vain did I care about what God cares about. All in vain did I pursue his way. And then he goes on, for all the day long I have been stricken, rebuked every morning. Every day he woke up, he saw the prospering wicked, he felt rebuked, and I'm sure that they scorned him as well and added to that. He was just this close to renouncing his priestly ordination. He was just this close to leaving his ministry. He was just this close to throwing all of his vestments in the garbage. The slip has become a racing rushing slide down the slope. As we did that mud run and as we came to the pit, once your feet hit that red slimy clay, it's over, baby. You're in the bottom of the pit. And that's the way it was. He's that close to giving it all up. And then just at the right moment, at just the last second, comes the slap. And it's verses 15 through 17, the slap. Now, the reason why I'm talking about it being a slap is because years and years ago, when I was in high school, I was done with football my sophomore year, but we still had to do, in Oklahoma, we still had to do P.E. And so more high school used to have, I don't know if it still does, but used to have an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And so I signed up to get lifeguard certified. Don't worry, you're safe. I never got certified. You're Okay. And the few things that I still remember from that class, the one thing I remember when I was 17 and they were going through this class is they said, as you go out into the lake or into a pool to grab someone who's drowning, know that when you get there, they will fight you often tooth and nail. And then they told us, I don't know if they still say this, but they told us, you will have to slap them or you'll have to punch them just to stun them long enough so you can get your arm around them and get to the bank without drowning too. And I'm sure that nurses, I bet you some of the nurses' classes probably talked about that as well, that when you get into nursing, sometimes you've got patients that are crazy, and you've got to give them a little elbow jab, or maybe you've got to punch them. I don't know if they do that. But there's some patients I would imagine they need to do that, right? Moose could probably tell us stories about how that was important, maybe sometimes slugging someone just to get them into their senses. That's why I'm using the word slap here, because that's exactly what's going on. The slap comes in two parts. Think about a slap that goes this way and this way, this way and this way. It comes in two parts. It starts in verse 15. 
It starts when he looks around to those for whom he is responsible. Listen to the words. If I had said, I will speak thus. So verses 1 through 14, he hasn't said out loud yet. And so if I had said, I will speak thus. Remember, brothers and sisters, what's in your head does not have to come out of your mouth. If I said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He suddenly recalls, at just the right moment, he recalls that he is a role model, that he is responsible. He's responsible not only for himself, but for those who were given into his care, the children of God. It's very much what Paul was telling Titus. In all respects, be a model of good works. You're you're leading from the front. Lead from the front. Be a model of good works. And even in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and health-giving speech so that that cannot be condemned, etc. It sobered him up for a moment to realize who he's responsible for. Now, brothers and sisters, you may be thinking I'm talking about ministers. Well, I am, but I'm not. Every one of you is a role model. My kids hated it, but I told them all the time. You're always an example. You're either a good example or you're a bad example, but you're always an example. You're never not an example. You're always a role model. If you don't believe me, just look around. Look at the kids. They do watch you. They do look up to you. Look at the teenagers. Look at even the younger adults. We're all role models. We're responsible, not just for ourselves, but for these as well. It was a sobering part of the slap to go, oh, I'm accountable, not just for me, but for them. If I had said thus, that I would speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. But the slap comes back the other direction, and it's verses 16 and 17. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. When I tried to figure all this out about how the wicked were prospering, and I, I think you're a God of justice, I teach it, I believe that, but then I see this, and I'm just baffled what to do until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Recognizing who he's accountable for sobered him up enough to bring him back into worship and to stand before the face of God where he is finally slapped into total sensibleness. My friends, anything, anything that erodes the fear of God will intensify the fear of man. And anything that intensifies the fear of man will erode the fear of God. But here's one more direction. You see it right here. Anything that intensifies the fear of God will erode the fear of man. Anything that intensifies the fear of God will erode the fear of man. So Asaph received a two-part life-saving slap that intensified the fear of God. Which brings Asaph then to this moment where there's a shift in the psalm. It brings Asaph to confession, verses 18 through 22. 18 through 22, the confession. Notice that first off, the first part of the confession is that God really is good. He actually does care about the unfairness. 
He does care about the advancement of evil, the successes and prosperity of the arrogant and the wicked. And he will one day at the right time, verse 20, when you rouse yourself, will act to turn all wrongs to right. Notice how this works with the the, uh, conclusion of verse 17. Then I discerned their end, and their end is then laid out in verses 18 through 20. Then I discern their end, and this is their end. Yes, you do care about what's going on. And so the confession brings, begins with Asaph renouncing the skewed and screwed up notions about God that, that the wicked were telling one another, and Asaph was beginning to believe. If you go back and look at verse 11, this is the skewed and screwed up aspects of what they were saying about God, and Asaph was beginning to believe it. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And then you come to the end of verse 17 and end of verses 18 to 20, and you hear Asaph going, yes, God does know. There is knowledge in the Most High, and He will come and make all wrongs right. That's pretty important. But the confession gets even closer to home. And that Asaph, verses 21 and 22, Asaph, announces his own fault in the whole affair. He announces his own fault in the whole affair. He's back to what he was doing in verses 2 and 3. He's announcing here now his own fault in this whole affair. Verse 21 and 22, he was embittered as he examined the prosperity of the arrogant and the wicked. He was embittered. He was pricked in his own heart, cut to the quick. He was brutish and ignorant. He acted like a senseless beast. Now, I love my house pets. We have two of them. We have Sydney the cat and we have Raleigh the dog. And both of them are weird. Both of them follow their noses and their stomachs and there's no rationality. Why does a dog roll in deer poop? Where's the sense in all of that? There is no sense. That's what he's driving at. I was like... Raleigh, rolling on dead carcass somewhere before you. A senseless brute. But notice he's owning his own part in this. He's placing his slip and his slide squarely upon his own shoulders. What he's saying is this, it's my fault that I almost walked away. It's my own faithless fault. It's my own stupid fault. It's my own envious fault. Now this moment of this kind of conversion, this change, this sudden recognition is very much like the minister. And when I'm going to use a minister as an example, it doesn't excuse anybody else, okay? Put your situation in here. But I can use this as an example. It could be autobiographical, but I won't tell anyone. It's like that moment that the minister who had... who who had been seriously treated badly by his church, was even run out of Dodge by a congregation. And so he spent years decrying that congregation's problems, cataloging all of the backstabbing and all of the back alley ways that that congregation used to run him out and how it almost destroyed him and all these other things. And then suddenly... Somewhere down the road, like a conversion, 
He doesn't deny those things, but he begins to own his part. He begins to point out his own ministerial knuckleheadedness. He begins to recognize and confess his own bad attitude that bred much of his trouble. He even acknowledges his biting tongue, sometimes used at a pulpit as he looked at those who had wronged him or he felt had wronged him and began preaching specifically against them. His own biting tongue that had harmed his parishioners begins to own his own fault in the situation. It's almost like a conversion. And that conversion moment is right here, verse 21 and 22. And yet I want you to notice that the wicked of the earlier part of the psalm, the wicked are still wicked, and they're still going to be held accountable for all of their immoralities. And so none of this confession wipes out the first part of the psalm. What it's doing is Asaph is now turning a corner and no longer hiding behind the prosperity of the arrogant and wicked as an excuse for his envy. Did you hear that? Because he owns his own fault, he's now no longer hiding behind the successes and power and and prosperity of the arrogant and wicked as an excuse to do what he wants to do, which was be envious. Instead, what he's doing is he's conceding that the problem, his biggest problem is himself. My friends, that's a giant step in a man's life. That's a huge turning point in a woman's journey to start recognizing, oh, these were my faults in that situation. These were my faults. And so this confession shows real, genuine repentance is in the works. Which makes Asaph then open to God's confirmation, which is verses 23 through 26, God's confirmation. And there's four parts, I could probably add to this, but for time I'll just keep it at four. There's at least four parts to this confirmation. Notice first off, The confirmation is closely tied to Asaph's repentant confession. You don't see it very well in the English, but you do see it in the Hebrew. You know that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, right? So you do see it very, very clearly in the Hebrew. I'll give you an example. Notice the end of verse 22. I was like a beast toward you. Now, the translators translate it nicely. It's beautiful. But in the Hebrew, it's I was a beast with you. Then look at verse 23, the very first part. Nevertheless, I'm continually what? With you, same Hebrew word. Then you get down to verse 25, and it's the last part of verse 25, and there is nothing on earth that I desire with you. That's the way it is in the Hebrew all three times. Tying this whole thing together. The confirmation is closely tied to Asaph's repentant confession. In verse 22, Asaph stood before the judge. Like a brute beast before you or with you. He stands before the judge, acknowledging the judge is right to condemn him. Very much like David in Psalm 51. And yet, verse 22, 
Now that he's come clean, he finds that this judge who has the right and rightly is judging him is really his tender, is really tender and compassionate. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And not only is he tender and compassionate, he is his all in all. Verse 25, when he says, um, and there's nothing on earth that I desire with you. There's the first part of his confirmation. The second part is he tells you why he did not finally slip away completely. He tells you why he did not finally lose faith totally, even though his faith was shattering and it was splintering. And it's described here, especially verse 23. And you will notice it's all God's grace alone and all God's goodness alone toward his people. Even toward Asaph when he was not part of the pure in heart. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. Do you see it? The reason why Asaph didn't go away completely, why his faith didn't shatter is because God had hold of him. You hold my right hand. When we were doing that mud run, there was no way out of that pit until somebody put their hand down, grabbed us, and pulled us up. I don't know if you, you had that issue, but we had that issue more than once. I'm looking at Alan Way. That's why I was pointing that way. Sorry. When I was a little child, I've told you the story in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a little bitty boy, and the street was busy in downtown Tulsa, and I'm there with my dad, and I'm just scared because there's all these honking vehicles driving around, buzzing around, and dad puts his hand down and holds my hand, and we get across safely, and I know I'm safe because daddy has me. Asaph may have gotten lost on the way, but God never lost him in the way. That's why Asaph's faith didn't Give out holy. It's all God's grace alone and His goodness alone. Hallelujah. Nonetheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. The next part of the confirmation is a play on the idea of endings. Endings. Notice the conclusion of verse 17. Then I discerned their end. And it's not a pretty end, verses 18 through 20. Nevertheless, I discerned their end. He uses the same Hebrew word again when he gets down to verse 24. It's translated as afterward, but it is actually in the Hebrew this way. In the end, you will receive me to glory. Are you paying attention? Two different destinies. Then I discerned their end, and it ain't pretty. In the end. You will receive me to glory. Two different destinies. And lastly, notice that Asaph has become clear-headed and clear-eyed and he recognizes where his only comfort in life and in death lie. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh, my heart may fail. By the way, if you don't know this, your flesh and heart will fail. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's where his only comfort in life lay, lay there in the hands of God. Oh, dear friends, anything that intensifies the fear of God will erode the fear of man. So this confirmation spawns Asaph's concluding composure. It's the last two verses. 
Psalm 73, verse 27 and 28. And this concluding composure is a million miles away from the first 22 verses of Psalm 73. Those whom Asaph was once envious of, verse 27, well, their conclusion is not going to be a happy one. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Now notice that Asaph does not gloat over it. He doesn't pump his fist in the air as in some kind of uh, football victory dance. Last night we were at BJ's watching TCU. Whoop, Michigan! Yeah! And to see all the folks at BJ's that were all on the side of TCU and woo, touchdown! It was all wonderful. They did, Asaph doesn't do that. He's not gloating. He's not dancing with satisfaction and glee. Instead, notice what he's doing. He's putting it in the psalm again, really. Why? Because he's teaching through the psalm. This is a proclamation, a declaration. It's for the children of God. It's a declaration to remind the children of God not to become envious of the arrogant and wicked of their successes. To not let anything erode the fear of God like Asaph had once done. But it's also an announcement to any of the arrogant and any of the wicked who might have actually come to church that day when the psalm was being sung. Warning them, bad news awaits you. Ah, verse 28, but there's a door of good news. The good news lies in that final verse. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may declare all your works. Notice what Asaph is saying. Goodness lies in being near God who has shown once again that he wants us to be near him. It is good to be near God. But secondly, goodness is found in making God your refuge. Your storm shelter. We know storm shelters. We live in Oklahoma, don't we? Right? You get a storm shelter. Here comes that tornado. And you get in that storm shelter and you... It's freaky being in a tornado in a storm shelter, but you feel pretty secure. God is our refuge, our shelter, our storm shelter in the storm. Goodness is found in making God your refuge even when the successful wicked run the corporations, the foundations, the legacy media, the universities, the governments. Throw whatever you want to in there. Goodness is found in making God your refuge. But goodness is also found in gossiping the gospel. In gabbing about the goodness of God, our refuge. That I may declare all your works. Instead of spending all of our live long day and time giving evil and evildoers all of our breath and all of our brain energies, actually spending our time talking about the goodness of God, our refuge. Anything that erodes the fear of God will intensify the fear of man. And what intensifies the fear of man will erode the fear of God. Ah, but anything that intensifies the fear of God 
will erode the fear of man. Dear friends, 2023 is upon us. Whoop, whoop. We made it. It's touch and go. Let nothing erode the fear of God in you. Nothing. Yeah, I mean that, what you just thought. Let nothing erode the fear of God in you. If it does, it will only intensify the fear of man. And dear friends, you, Christians, you have every reason to think and to remember and to gab about the goodness of God, even in the face of overwhelming badness or lies or evil. You have every reason. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And in the end, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You will bring an end to all those who are faithless. But for me, it is good to be near God. To make the Lord our God my refuge, our refuge, that I may declare all your works. And on that note, I can say, dear brothers and sisters, have a happy new year. Let's pray. Thank you so much, our Lord, that Psalm 73 is here in all of its starkness and boldness and comfort and guidance. Forgive us when we have allowed the fear of man to intensify and thus to erode the fear of God. We pray. May our hearts be swelled with awe of you. Amazement at how good you are in spite of what we deserve. Delight. Delight that you are our refuge even in stormy times. And may we blab to everybody about your works and how good you are. In Jesus' name, amen.